the business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back uh, to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I want to thank our sponsors uh, for the second hour making this show economically viable. Uh, They are Eurostar Gold Corp. and Liberty Silver Corp. Uh, I'm really pleased uh, to have, uh, supposedly, we're supposed to have Ian Gordon with us, although um, apparently our engineer uh, has not been able to get in touch with him just yet. Uh, Ian uh, is a globally renowned economic forecaster and author of the Long Wave Analyst Newsletter. He's a student of economic and investment history, and Ian's unique analysis of the cycle has garnered great praise from many notable sources, including some exceptionally well-known investment managers. Ian is a consultant to many mining companies and has assisted many junior mining firms in raising capital over the past number of years. Uh, he was perhaps the first investment profess, uh, professional uh, anywhere to recognize the markets were about to give birth to a new secular bull market, and that was back, uh, well, in the late 1990s already, uh, 1989, I remember Ian doing his first financing um, of a mining company in the United States. Uh, he was uh, also one of the first financial professionals to begin aggressively raising capital at the very start uh, of the secular bull market in gold uh, as well. Now, Ian, uh, I'm, my engineer is telling me he is not there yet, so I'm not sure uh, what we're going to do. I can just give you a little bit of background on Ian and a little bit of his thesis, the Kondratiev cycle, uh, that Ian has talked about in the past, uh, and he's really written about extensively. Ian believes, uh, and, he, and he's actually taken, has studied the work of Nikolai Kondratiev, who was a an economist, um, uh, and he was an economist uh, that uh, Stalin hired and had hoped uh, would help the propaganda efforts of that regime uh, to tell the people that capitalism would uh, would fail. Um, in fact, uh, Kondratiev uh, studied what really happens in capitalism, and he says it never completely is extinguished. In fact, it continues to live on. What you do have are these major cycles of massive expansion, of credit expansion, uh, and then contraction. And I'm thinking now, as we were just talking to Dmitry Orlov, the, uh, this whole uh, notion that uh, systems expand to the point where they can't expand any longer, and then they implode. Well, this is really what uh, Kondratiev concluded about the Kondratiev cycle many years ago. And he was convinced that, in fact, uh, that capitalism then continues to survive. And it makes eminent sense to me. I mean, people, 
uh, capitalism is not what people think it is because of we're really Gene Epstein has called it capitalism because what it is is people that have power uh, end up getting special favors passed on to them by um, by governments and and really it is a really economic fascism and Gene Epstein calls it capitalism uh, and and then uh, so Kondratiev understood that these cycles would go on. Uh, and uh, and they, they could not be done away with. But what he did realize was that they had these massive expansions, credit expansions, and then contractions. And uh, Ian Gordon has then, after studying Kondratiev's work, went out and gathered a lot of data himself, had some wonderful charts that sort of show these 60- or 70-year expansion contraction periods of time. And Ian's view is that we are now in... Uh, the contraction phase of the most recent cycle that began in 1949, and it is uh, it is at the contraction phase, or what Ian has uh, calls the Kondratiev winter phase of the cycle. And Ian has has carved up this cycle into six or, or into four different seasons: the spring, uh, summer, autumn, and, uh, and and winter. And uh, we are in the winter season, and I'm told now that we do have Ian Gordon with us. So, welcome, Ian. Hi, Jay. I'm really sorry about that. Well, that's okay. You had to take your afternoon nap, no doubt. No, I didn't. I had to go, <laughs> I had to go and take a lunch, go for lunch, forgetting about you. Oh, well, you <laughs> know, you can, forget, you can forget about me, but please don't forget about my listeners because they are very important okay. and, and, they, uh, and they really want to know what you have to say. We, um, uh, for sure, uh, I was just uh, sort of killing a little time trying to fill in uh, for your absence, I, I, I'm talking about the Kondratiev cycle, uh, which, you I and I have, you, yeah. which we, you and I have talked about many times in the past. So we're in, uh, uh, for the benefit of many of our listeners who, I think a lot of them are very familiar with you, but we've had a lot of growth in our in our listenership. And so maybe for the sake of those that aren't familiar, uh, just talk a little bit more about the Kondratiev cycle, about the seasons. There's a season, there's four seasons in the cycle, the 60-70 year cycle. And each of those seasons are good for investing in different kinds of things. Now, we are in the Kondratiev winter right now, which I believe you, you say started in the year 2000 with the peak of the stock market uh, in 2000, right? Right. So talk, talk well, to us about yeah. the uh, – maybe just briefly talk about the spring, summer, and autumn. What is good to invest in the spring, for example? What kind of items are good to invest in? Well, well the seasons uh... – are actually quite apropos of uh, the annual seasons. Um, spring being the birth or rebirth of the economy, uh, summer being the time when the economy effectively reaches its fruition. Uh, autumn is the, I call it the feel-good period, and uh, winter is the time when the economy dies. And um, we know, we, could, you know, from the work that I've done, uh, which is uh, built on Kondratiev's work, but the work I've done, and he, he hadn't done this, of course, is I can actually recognize uh, when each of the seasons begins and when you're moving into the next season. So uh, spring began in 1949, uh, the rebirth of the economy, and that lasted until 1966. So, I mean, if you're looking for something to invest in in the spring, um, obviously... Um, stocks because the economy is starting to uh, blossom again and, mm -hmm. and real estate are, are good investments in the mm -hmm. spring mm -hmm. and 
1966, you, you moved from uh, spring into summer, and we, we recognize that change coming in the seasons is actually when the stock market peaks. Mm-hmm. And the stock market peaked in June 1966 at 995, that was 995 points. And you go into summer, and that's always the inflationary period of the cycle. Um, and there's always been a, a war, a summer war in the, in, the, in the cycle, and that war has always been financed through money printing. And so um, you have, uh, uh, in the summer, this summer, the war was the Vietnam War. The previous summer was the mm-hmm. First World War, and the summer before that was the U.S. Civil War, and the summer before that was the War of 1812. So you get this money printing, and so you get inflation as a result. And um, the best things to invest in in the in the long wave summer, the Kondratiev summer, are things that are going to move with inflation. So essentially, real estate again is going to do very well in that period. Stocks do not do well; they don't perform during the inflationary season. Uh, gold and silver, all metals do extremely well. Uh, even collectibles do very well. So. Um, then you'd recognize when the summer's um, coming in end because you always have a bear market that marks the end of summer, and that was the uh, bear market between 1981 and 82. And that uh, ushers in autumn, and the autumn is the uh, feel-good period. And the reason it's a feel-good period because it's the most speculative period in the entire cycle. So stocks and bonds and real estate all perform very, very well during autumn. Um, uh, so between 1981 and, and 2000, you've got a, a huge boom in the stock market. Bond market does well because interest rates are coming down. And um, real estate does exceptionally well. And the winter, uh, the, uh, and part of the problem that occurs in autumn is there's generally a massive buildup in debt that uh, a lot of it is because of that, uh, the wealth that's being created through um, uh, investments in stocks and bonds and real estate and so on, so that uh, people borrow on the basis of, of, of rising net worth and so on. Um, and then the signal for winter is the peak in the big autumn stock bull market. And we say that that occurred in 2000. Uh, when the speculative peak definitely occurred at that time, when the NASDAQ topped in March 2000. The Dow topped in 2000, January at 11,750. And that ushers in the winter when uh, debt is basically uh, cleansed from the economy and the, and the payback of debt occurs. So uh, we're going through that process now, although governments around the world are loath to let that system that uh, process take effect. All right. And it seems to me that obviously by the time you get to that Kondratiev autumn, it's been a long time since the the prior Kondratiev winter. People are forgetting the lessons that were learned by their grandparents during the 1930s, I guess, and uh, at that right. last. So, and and yeah, so they're the feeling previous... very, very, uh, very optimistic about things. They think that there's nothing can go wrong, and people start to believe that uh, policymakers have it right, everybody's happy, everybody's getting rich, not everybody, but a larger number of people are getting rich and feeling happy, and and nothing can go wrong. And then finally, you reach that limit, I guess. It's that debt limit then that, that stops this growth, Ian, from, from continuing? Well, it's, it's 
usually the the thing that really uh, puts an end to the autumn is the bear market, the beginnings of the bear market. So you have a massive speculation that occurs towards the end of that uh, big bull market in stocks. I mean, the same thing happened uh, between 21 and 29. That was the previous autumn. And the speculation really in the markets started to occur in 1928. And when that market peaked in 29, it wasn't the cause of the depression. But obviously, when you get the crash, uh, a lot of people's net worth gets seriously hurt, and um, so that they don't have, you know, they they can't pay, start, they can't pay back the debt that they owe, and the same really occurred in 2000. And a lot of people's net worth got seriously hurt, um, and the debt is, you know, really is overwhelming the economy. Um, Alan Greenspan is chairman of the Federal Reserve at that time, was loath to let the process occur in 2000. So interest rates were, were dropped from 6 to 1% uh, by 2002. And that kind of rejigged the stock market again in, starting in October 2002. But the, the worst thing that that did, the bringing down interest rates and flooding the banks with money, mm-hmm. was to really get the real estate bubble going. And, of course... That reached its uh, zenith in 2006, and and then in 2007 the stock market peaked, and the stock market peaked, and um, uh, again, you know, and interest rates had risen back to six percent during that peak, and again, and then they and uh, we had a crash and banking system in the U.S. became sort of very tenuous because of the massive amounts of debt that had been accumulated. Um, General Motors and Chrysler were essentially bankrupted at that stage and got bailed out by the taxpayers. And uh, again, uh, the new Federal Reserve Chair, Chairman Ben Bernanke was loath to let the process uh, happen. And so he brought interest rates down from that 6 to 0%, again flooding the banks with money, uh, with things like quantitative easing and so on. And we've again had a stock market that's sort of being pushed back upwards uh, through all this money being made available to the banks, uh, zero interest rates the banks have to pay and so on from that uh, 2009 March bottom. Uh, so we pushed stocks back up to uh, very high levels. And uh, unfortunately, um, Mr. Bernanke's actions have not been able to re start the um, uh, real estate market. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's very, very tepid real estate market for sure. But Ian, I have a question for you now with respect to the peak of 2000, and then we did have a new Dow high of 2000 and 2007, as you say, and that Dow high was considerably higher than the, than the Dow high of 2000. But you're marking the Kondratiev winter as starting in 2000 because that was the peak of the speculative bubble, and we know the NASDAQ, of course, has never even come close. Maybe it's regained 50% or even 60%, but it's never come close to its high of, what was it, 4,000 or something? It was Five, about 5,300 on 5, the NASDAQ. 5,300, right. So it's, mm-hmm. it's only, you know, regained about 50% of that, that right. loss. But the Dow is only 30 stocks, Jay, but if you look at the S&P, which is 500 stocks, you'll see that essentially the top in in 2007 was pretty well at making a double pot top with that in, in 2000. So, 
um, we're, you know, I'm convinced, and as are many other people, that the real peak in stock prices occurred in 2000. I think that uh, Robert Prechter, who I know you've had on your show, would agree with that. So, and that peak in the stock prices is a signal that you've now begun the winter. Yeah, so we're in this Kondratiev winter, you would say, starting in, in 2000. We're 12 years or into that, into this season. Uh, it's very difficult for most people to be able to see it because, uh, as you pointed out, we've had this run from the bottom uh, up to 2007. Then we had this horrific decline after the Lehman Brothers uh, debacle, after the Lehman Brothers implosion, and then another rip up higher with all this monetary ease and p- money pumped into the system. So, you know, people have a difficult time stepping back and looking at this long-term picture. It's very difficult for people to see it. It's day-to-day. We look at the markets. Now, today I see the Dow was down 64. Uh, you know, TSX was down 93. Pretty pretty down day-to-day. But the trend has been, you know, it's been people are sort of feeling not so not like they did after Lehman Brothers, for sure. People are feeling somewhat optimistic again. Um what do you say to people that say, "Come on, Ian, you're just too you're just too pessimistic"? Well, I, I think I think a lot of people do say that about me. Um, I, I just wrote in a piece on my website, you know, that people see me as a, a doom and gloomer. Yep. And um, and effectively, you know, I think that every interference in the natural process of the markets that we've had. So we had a an interference between 2000 and 2002 by Alan Greenspan. That interference, bringing interest rates down from 6 to 1%, that interference effectively uh, ignited a massive real estate bubble. And then uh, we've had the interference by Ben Bernanke from 2009 to the present. Massive amounts of money being made available to the banks, and zero interest rates. But effectively, that hasn't really got the economy uh, going again. You know, the economy was booming, or at least real estate was booming, and the stock market was doing exceptionally well between 2002 and 2007. Now all that's happening is the stock market is doing very, very well. So mm-hmm. they're running out of ammunition, and on the next down, down, and they're desperate actually to keep the stock prices up because they know that that's a measure for most people of their wealth. Um, and they both, both uh, Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke have come out and acknowledged that they are that stock prices are very important to them. So there's a, a huge sort of interest in making sure the stock prices uh, continue to uh, do very well. And But once, and I'm a big believer that markets are, uh, they, uh, you know, natural law and governed by natural law, that once these sort of man-made interferences in the natural process of the markets uh, are overwhelmed by the natural process, and when that overwhelming uh, gets, it makes things far worse. So I think that ultimately what we're going to see is a depression that's significantly worse than the depression of the 30s. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid you might be right about that. We, you know, we had Dmitry Orloff was talking uh, before you came on. He was our guest, 
and he talked about how he's observed these systems that expand that that these systems have they, they get too big they expand and they grow beyond their tenable size and they can't uh, and they have to keep growing or else they're going to implode it's either it's either growth or implosion and you know it seems to me that one of the things the US is trying to do now given the dismal economic situation we have here is use its military to expand its empire to expand its its markets its growth do you see it that way well i'm not sure i mean you know whether they're doing that to expand growth but uh, certainly um the us is a huge component of uh, sorry the us military is a huge component of the us budget mm-hmm. and um and that uh, component, you know, naturally the sort of the building of weapons and so on uh, does keep a lot of people uh, employed. So, um, you know, I don't think they're downsizing on on the military component in the budget. Uh, if they are, it's by a minuscule amount. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the U.S. is basically, uh, by my way of thinking, is a spent power. Um, you know, and that uh, eventually, you know, it won't be able to maintain the kind of um, spend the money that it's spending on its military, and uh, uh, simply because its debt is now out of hand. I mean, it's 16 trillion dollars, or closing in on 16 trillion dollars in the U.S. It's, it's absolutely an, a, a debt that can never be repaid, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so I think that the U.S. is much like Britain, you know, after the really after the First World War, you know, it became such an indebted nation in fighting that war that uh, you know it's it sort of its power started to recede and recede quite dramatically, and the U.S. took over really as the as the greatest economic, and financial, and military power in the world. Certainly, that was evident in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Dimitri talked about, uh, you know, in the, in the 1930s, he's making the comparison the 1930s and now, he says you can't really compare the two because in the 30s there were still na- national nation states. And his view is that we have gone beyond that now. And, in fact, the powers behind the throne are multinational. In fact, I think, was, as you were saying, you think this could be much bigger than the 1930s. It seems I think Dimitri would probably agree with you on that because this – the problem is much bigger, and it's, and it's international in scope now. It is at least the Western world, the whole Western world. So we see uh, the United States uh, sending $2 trillion to the European Union, uh, money that is created out of nothing, of course, because we certainly aren't taxing people for that. And we, we create that money and send it to the European Union, which then doles it out to various banks to keep them alive a little longer and uh, it seems to me that certainly Mr. Bernanke isn't going to do that without, you know, as always, creditors expect something back from their borrowers, right? So isn't, isn't this a way that the Anglo-American empire is perhaps trying to gain, you know, to circle the wagon or to, to gain control over the entire Western world? Uh, and that, in fact, they're trying to keep the system alive and afloat by, by doing that. Well, I think it's the end of the Anglo-American empire. Uh, frankly, I think mm-hmm. the Anglo-American ang- empire is bankrupt, and um, and they're throwing even more and more paper money at a paper money problem. So uh, it's not going to solve the problem uh, one bit. You know, when you re- the whole problem by in in my 
estimation is being caused by uh, paper money, fiat money. Uh, the whole debt problem that we have now is so out of hand everywhere, and it's all being made available by the printing of, you know, the ramping up of the printing pressures. And, um, you, you know, you don't solve a debt problem by creating even more of it. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get the thing rejigged, restarted by creating even more debt. But unfortunately, it's the sovereign, the countries themselves that are taking on the debt because uh, they're loath to see their banking, their banks collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're trying to sort of take the uh, onus of uh, the debt problems off the banks and put it onto their own balance sheets. And, and, and uh, it's not going to work. Okay? The whole thing is, to my estimation, has to be uh, has to collapse, and a new system has to evolve from that collapse. Mm-hmm. Well, it is. It certainly makes a lot of sense to me. This notion that, um, in fact, Dimitri also uh, mentioned this as well. That, you know, it's taking more debt money now to create uh, a dollar of income than it than than the. Uh, in other words, it's a negative. It's a negative input. More. It takes more debt now than what you get out of it in terms of income. I think it was two and a half to two was the ratio he used. I don't know. If you have some thoughts, and we had David Tice in the show a number of years ago talking about this. David used to talk about how it takes more and more debt money to create one dollar of income, and so what we're doing is, uh, but but people don't see this, and many of our friends uh, that are gold bugs uh, are hyperinflationists or inflationists. They don't seem to see this albatross, this albatross that is dangling around our necks every time. They create more money they're creating because it's debt money. And I like to say that debt is the raw material from which money is manufactured in this fiat currency fractional reserve system. So what you see this, do you not, as the crux of a deflation, a major massive implosion in, in the supply of money. Is that right? I, I do, Joe. I see, actually, I see the whole system collapsing, the paper money system collapsing under the massive amount of debt that's, uh, you know, overloaded everything, the banks, the sovereign nations, and so on. So the whole system is just essentially falling apart. And when that collapse occurs, you know, I think that the inflation is what they see is that the ability to keep creating more and more money and therefore effectively uh, pushing up prices, you know, is that... Supposedly, that is transferred to an increase in prices, and, and, and it should be. You know, money printing should effectively translate into an increase in prices, but we see that we've already got in the U.S. a massive deflation in housing prices. Um, once the stock market gives up, and I'm sure it will because it has to eventually sort of reflect the realities of the economy, um, once the stock market gives up, you know, that's a whole bunch more wealth that's being pushed, pulled out of the system. And when you get a banking collapse, which I'm sure is going to happen, that's even more money that's being pulled out of the system. So, in effect, I, I, I don't see any way that they can inflate their way out of the problem. They've already, already basically created such a massive debt load. That's overhanging the system. is going to bring the whole thing to a head and the in a massive depression, and there's no way that you can have inflation in a depression. It seems to me, uh, you know, when I make that argument with John Williams, who we've had on the show, John's uh, John's 
answer to that is that yes, but the dollar is going to become worthless. Uh, and if the dollar is worthless, then everything that we have will become uh, will become very, very expensive. We have to import oil and whatever else. Uh, we only have a few seconds left. I'd like to have you come back after the other after the commercial break to discuss this. But perhaps we can start right now. What, what's your response? What would be your response to John Williams when he uh, to his uh, to his reply uh, to that issue? Well. You know, the, the fact is that I think that what he's seeing is the dollar is, um, you know, the only currency that's going to collapse. Mm-hmm. And essentially what I see is all currencies collapsing. Now, the euro is already basically on its deathbed. And, um, and, and really, the, and I talked to you about this yesterday, I see huge parallels between the monetary crisis that uh, is evolving now uh, throughout the world and the monetary crisis that occurred in, in the last Kondratiev winter in the 1930s. And uh, essentially uh, what happened then was, uh, and that was when the world was on a gold standard system, gold exchange standard system, not a pure gold standard system, but when that uh, monetary system started to collapse and it happened to collapse happened to start in Europe, um, speculators started to turn on other countries so that once the euro and, say, Greece and Spain and so on are forced out of the euro, speculators start to look at the other massively indebted countries. And what's happening in Greece and Spain is you're seeing huge rising interest rates as people refuse to uh, buy those uh, the, the debt that these countries want to issue. And uh, the same is going to happen once the focus of attention is placed on the United States and the United Kingdom. Then we're going to see rising interest rates occurring there as people say, look, if you want us to uh, support your debt and, and buy your debt, then you're going to have to give us a far better interest rate than you're giving us right now. Okay. Well, we'll we've got to go to a break right now. And when we come back, I want to pursue that idea of interest rates and what that might mean. Uh, rising interest rates for the United States economy at a time when we have debt uh, that is just unbelievably beyond uh, beyond imagination, beyond comprehension, actually, with trillions of dollars of debt at zero interest. It's not uh, you know it's not what it would be even at two or three percent, but let alone some kind of skyrocketing interest rates like we see in Greece and places. It's it's just it boggles the mind. Ian, we want to have you back uh, as soon as we come back from uh, our next commercial break. So, uh, folks, don't go away. We'll be right back with Ian Gordon. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares 
surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have Ian Gordon returning for another few minutes here. Uh, today's show, we were talking at the break, uh, right before the break, about rising interest rates. And, Ian, you were suggesting that what's going to happen is that, uh, you know, after one country gets hit, the speculators go after it, uh, and the speculators are going after Greece and Spain and places like that for good reason. I mean, let's face it, these, these are countries that are in... That are in hock, they can't. They don't have the wherewithal to finance the debt they've taken on. So once they've destroyed those countries, it's not that you know the speculators get blamed for destroying it. It's the countries themselves that have destroyed it. Let's put that. Let's put that uh, that that boogie away because it's not the speculators. Are not bad people. They're people that recognize uh, trends in markets and try to capitalize from it uh, on it. And they're actually doing a service, I believe, when markets are allowed to work. They're doing. A service. They're saying that they're trying to put things back in order, which they would do if if the politicians would allow the free markets to work. So anyway, we go from Greece to Spain to Portugal. You know, you name it. Those countries go down, and then eventually they come to the United States. Do you think the U.S. would be the last the last uh, currency standing, possibly? Well, um, I think it will be um, simply because you know it still has that reserve currency status, although. Uh, that uh, status is being eroded somewhat by uh, Chinese sort of uh, basically uh, dealing with different countries like Japan and, uh, and using their own currencies to for trade between themselves and so on. So um, I think the, the U.S. dollar um, will be the last to go. I think once Europe essentially goes, I think attention will be t- uh, focused on the United Kingdom, which again is hopelessly over-indebted and uh, interest rates will be forced up in the United Kingdom. The advantage of, you know, that these uh, United Kingdom and the United States have, though, is that they have, they have their own central bank and the central bank can basically interfere in the, in the bond market by essentially buying the bonds 
mm-hmm. uh, that the country has to issue, buying the debt that the country has to issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's done through things like quantitative easing. Sure. And, of course, the, the real problem for the European countries is that they can't do that. Uh, mm-hmm. So that um, uh, unless the European Central Bank takes on the role and says, okay, we'll buy the debt of Spain and so on, and to essentially bring down the interest rates in those countries. Mm-hmm. But eventually mm-hmm. the balance sheets of the central banks become so overwhelmed by the amount of debt that they're going to have to take on that they won't be able to take it on anymore. Mm-hmm. And the foreigners simply won't lend money at you know zero interest rates to the United States and the United Kingdom, and the interest rates, therefore, will be forced up in those countries. Mm-hmm. Well, then ultimately what would cause the U.S. interest rates to rise um what would cause that? I mean, it would uh, the same dynamics, I guess, is when people start to realize that the uh, the emperor is wearing no clothes. When when they when they realize that the U.S. is broke, uh, when they start taxing people, uh, start taking our property from us in in mass. When will when when I mean, what would cause people then to see the U.S. as being broke? And well, and, and I, I mean. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Jay. I think a lot of people already realize that the U.S. is bankrupt. I mean, $16 trillion is, is an impossible amount to uh, repay. I think the, the point is that the Federal Reserve will, uh, you know, I think it, it, last year it took up something like 40% of the U.S. debt you know, mm-hmm. added to the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. So, um, so that means 60% is being financed outside the Federal Reserve. And eventually what's going to happen is that 60% is saying, say, we're not giving you any more. We're just not giving you any more. And um, uh, therefore, then interest rates have to, have to rise. And that will be the kiss of death uh, to any highly indebted nation. And that's the kiss of death to Spain, Portugal, Greece and so on, and that's you know what they're facing right now is these horrendous interest rates, and uh, you know their budgets just can't cope with that. Yeah, well, our inflation friends then would say that what will happen then, and Ron Paul would be in this camp as well. I've spoken to him about it on this show, is that what the government will do then will just simply hand out trillions of dollars to the masses, and then we get our hyperinflation. But you're not buying that. I'm not because. Um, uh, well, I mean, uh, they could. They could put uh, on everybody's, you know, a deposit into everybody's bank mm-hmm. bank account, you know, a, a certain amount of money. And they, they might say to them, okay, um, you know, if we, if we put $100,000 into your bank account, half of that has to be spent uh, to repay the debt mm-hmm. that you owe. And the other half you can go out and buy yourself a, a new Lexus, but not a Lexus. They wouldn't want, the United States wouldn't want you buying a Lexus. They'd want you buying a Ford or whatever. But, um, well, a General Motors like, product, for goodness sakes, because the government owns it. <laughs> government Motors, yes, yeah. exactly. Um, but I, I just think by that time, then the currency would be worth nothing. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and, and I think that's what John Williams is saying, too. But, I mean, I think... By the stage you get to that, uh, the whole thing has essentially collapsed, and it really doesn't matter because everything is worthless, too, in that currency. So I just don't see the means to produce a 
inflation when you have this massive overhang of debt. And it, it is so huge and that that thing is basically going to overwhelm the, the economies of the world and therefore that forces deflation. Banking mm-hmm. collapses, bankruptcies, and everything else, and that is very deflationary. Debt mm-hmm. is deflationary. Well, it is, and, and, and here again, I think you get back to this real simple concept that they, Gary Schilling pointed out, and I think that you and I have talked about many times, that he says that the U.S. government doesn't print money. Zimbabwe prints money, you know, the German hyper-inflationary uh, episode in the Weimar Republic. They p- literally printed money and sent it out to the, through the landscape, but we pump money into the banks, and the banks have to lend it out. Of course, every time money is put into the banks, you have double-entry bookkeeping, so you have a debt, you have a debt, and you have an asset, right? You have both sides of it. So we keep pre- creating more debt money, more debt, uh, and we still, but we're not creating income to service that debt. Isn't that essentially the problem? I mean, there's a great chart that you pointed out to me years ago, and I've used it in many of my discussions, talks, and that shows the exponential growth in the total debt of the United States, and then uh, that's a red line that goes straight up off the page, and then there is a blue line that's a, slightly positive, you know, uh, GDP, which is income. And, and clearly, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that this is not tenable long term, and yet we keep doing the same thing. We keep creating more of this debt money, uh, and so unless we do, uh, unless they do find a way to get trillions of dollars in the hands of the masses i i'm with you and i i have a hard time seeing the hyperinflationary side of it and and if that's the case then with the few minutes we have left uh what should people be doing i mean we know that gold is money ultimately and gold does very well in both extreme cases of hyperinflation and deflation but what but but to what extent are americans for example going to be allowed to keep their gold is another issue uh, what are some of the ways that people should be preparing for this for this devastating event? Uh, we, I think, it's always best to, you know, ho- hope for the best and plan for the worst. So, let's say let's plan for the worst right now. What should Americans be doing? Well, first of all, I think they have to get out of debt mm-hmm. as far as as much as they can because uh, you know once this process starts to collapse, banks are going to call in their loans. Right, and if you're in debt, they own you. Right, and you won't be able to pay them back if you know if you're hopelessly indebted. So as much as possible, you want to get out of debt. Jay, you know, in the Kondratiev seasons, uh, winter has always been the the most the safest investment in the Kondratiev. The long wave winter has been gold mm-hmm. and investment in gold shares. And I've been invested in gold since uh, the peak. Um, and the best way to measure the relationship of gold to st- uh, stocks is the Dow Jones divided by the price for an ounce of gold. Just mm-hmm. see that relationship because it ties very well around the the seasons. So that um, in the in the spring, you know, you get a the ratio reaches as a peak at the end of spring because stocks do very well and gold doesn't do anything. And in the summer, gold does very well. So you get you, the relationship comes back. Uh, at the end of summer to essentially a one-to-one relationship. Then in the autumn, when stocks do so well, you get to a very high peak again. And in fact, in July 1999, it's almost 44 to 1, 44 ounces of gold to buy the Dow Jones Industrials. Mm -hmm. And 
then you can sell, you know, you should be selling your stocks at these peaks and buying the alternative, which in this case is gold, and then you go back to another very low relationship. And so that's what I've been doing. I've been buying gold since 2000 and buying gold stocks and, uh, you know, preparing for this uh, winter, which uh, the long-wave winter, which I at this time I see to be something as I said before, far more extreme than the winter that we experienced in the 1930s, simply because the debt is far more pervasive, far more international in scope, uh, and much, much larger now than it was then. So the strategy should be to get out of stocks, get out of bonds, or short those, perhaps, although that's a dangerous strategy, and and own gold. But then again, as an American, I worry about, uh, what was what happened in the 1930s? They confiscated gold. So I'm suggesting to my listeners, uh, to my subscribers as well, that they might want to diversify their gold investments. You mentioned gold shares in the 1930s. People that owned Homestake did very well. It seems to me that if governments are forced to go back on the gold standard, which you and I both believe is going to happen, that. Uh, the governments are going to need gold, so gold mining companies will probably be allowed to exist and continue on. Hopefully, we'll be allowed to own them and to uh, and and at least keep some of the revenues and profits we get from them. But I would suggest that probably people need to own gold at home in bullion and coins. Uh, what there's other other investment vehicles too. I'm suggesting CEF, uh, which is the Central Fund of Canada. But you and I were talking at the break. You know, shares could be a problem, too. If the shares, because when you have the shares in your account, you don't own them. The broker owns them. So you should try to get the shares out and keep them in your own name rather than street name. Is that advisable? Well, if you can. But, you know, the problem that I have, and, I mean, again, I really haven't kind of thought this through, but, you know, it's sort of a a dark moment in the back of my mind is if the whole paper money system collapses, uh, which I think it's going to do, it means that the, that the stock market basically ceases to function because oh. all stocks are traded in paper money. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we do have, uh, at the onset of the First World War, the New York Stock Exchange was closed for four months. So we do have um, uh, that kind of experience to fall back on, that we know that uh, if that happens, but if you have that, the certificate in your hand, eventually it's going to have to be worth something. And I think that, you know, like you said, I think we are going to go back on a gold standard, and I think that the, the country that will initiate that will be China. China's buying up gold as fast as she can get her hands on it. She's mm-hmm. the biggest gold-producing country in the world, but none of that is allowed to leave the country. But she's also importing tons of gold mm-hmm. uh, every quarter. So I'm pretty sure that the Chinese... Uh, looking to back the remember with gold. And um, and when that happens, we'll all be forced back into some sort of standard because otherwise people just won't... Other currencies that refuse to go on a gold standard system will have no credibility. Of course, we're, uh, we are living our lives as if we will be allowed to keep private property. We had Alana Mercer on this show not long ago uh, giving the experience in South Africa and what's happened in the post-apartheid era when, in fact, people have not been allowed to keep their property. And when governments decide that you're not allowed to keep property and that your property now becomes the property of government, then our very lives are, are endangered. And this is, these are issues that people should be aware of. What's, 
what we have uh, ahead of us here in a collectivist mentality, a government that is in the United States now that is anything but a free market economy. Uh, it is a it is a confiscation game, uh, socialism, fascism, call it what you want. It is anything but. And private property, of course, is the ultimate uh, protector of liberty when it comes down to it. And this is, of course, uh, one of the reasons I think Ron Paul's gallant efforts to try to make wake people up to this severity. It's not just about materialism. It's not just about our well-being, our financial well-being, and having more than we need, but it's our very existence, which is very important. Ian, I want to thank you. We're out of time. Never enough time with you, for sure. There's so many more topics we could have talked about, but tell people where they can avail themselves to your service, because you have an excellent newsletter people should be subscribing to. Where can they go to learn about that? It's uh uh, longwavegroup.com. Longwavegroup.com. It's an excellent letter you write weekly, I believe, don't you, Ian? Well, actually, we have a we we write a thing called the Economic Winter once a month. I write a thing called Ian's Investment Insights uh, once a month, and we also produce a thing called the Week That Was every week. That's correct, and that's you really go back and look at some of the headlines each week and and the important ones. Uh, in terms of uh, the topics we just talked about. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Ian, for being with us. Uh, we'll look to have you back again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with some thoughts about today's show and about next week's guest. Uh, and We have another very interesting person. Richard Mayberry is going to be with us next week, so don't go away. I'll be right back uh, with some closing thoughts. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Arroway Energy is an oil-focused, Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Good times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, 
And uh, I just wanted a, a couple of uh, thoughts about today's show, just to sort of uh, sort of recap what we talked about. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, the most optimistic person that we talked to, I think, is Gene, was Gene Epstein. But Gene is also very realistic, and I think uh, you know he he does understand that we are in a very difficult time, and that uh, at best, what we can talk about is a very very disappointing recovery. Uh, it has been a recovery of sorts, I suppose, but there are certainly people that uh, are concerned, as you just heard from both Dmitry Orloff as well as Ian Gordon, uh, that this is uh, a prelude to something that might be much more severe, much more difficult than anything that we saw post-Lehman Brothers, anything that we saw during the 1930s. We can hope uh, that, that that very pessimistic view is wrong. Uh, I think it always makes sense to hope for the best and plan for the worst. I think there are a lot of good ideas in Dimitri's book, um, Reinventing Collapse, and I was delighted to hear that he's going to be writing a second book, but Reinventing Collapse has a lot of good ideas about how you can prepare uh, for the worst of these scenarios uh, in case they do take place. Um, Certainly, it makes sense to have some cash uh, available, to have some gold available, to have some food available. And don't let anybody tell you that you're a nutcase for doing that. I mean, that is the the government wants you to trust that they are going to take care of you. Because if you can trust that the government's going to take care of you, then um, then they've got you. They've got you where they want you. They they want you to be dependent on on the government. So Ian's advice of getting out of debt, I think, is number one. That's the best thing to do because if you are indebted, then someone else owns you and is a position of power to tell you what to do and and how to live your life and and basically to confiscate because the main problem that we all face is one that I think uh, more than anyone in recent uh, months on this show Alana Mercer pointed out the issue of private property and the right to own your property take that away from people and the government can essentially excuse me take away your very lives and in fact that is what governments have done which is why our founding fathers wanted the least government as the, and understood that least government was the best government. And they understood that governments could be the most threatening thing to people's lives because they had lived through it uh, themselves. Unfortunately, Americans are not of that mindset. They still look at these well-spoken PhDs from Harvard, Princeton, and Yale who assure them that things are really quite, quite good, in fact, in America. And I uh, do hope one time in the near future to talk about, to have someone to come on the show to talk about a great book called The Ominous Parallels by Leonard Peikoff. Uh, and one of the things that I noticed in that, in that book was that the people who, uh, who were really behind and planned the, uh, the death camps at Auschwitz and elsewhere were PhDs, very well-trained, very well-educated people. And what we see in America now, I think, in the slick um, propaganda machinery that we have in our mainstream media uh, you know, we can hope and pray that nothing so severe as that happens in America, but there are parallels. And when you have a president of the United States that can now decide who is a threat to the system without any oversight from anybody else, he can decide to eliminate you or me or anyone else who he considers to be a, an enemy of the state, then you have to wonder how far away are we from something terrible happening in this country. Uh, the fact that government can just uh, snuff out a life uh, without anybody asking any questions, without any, uh, without any court appearance, any lawyer 
it is very frightening in my view, and I think Ron Paul highlighted this uh, in in the debates this last um, last number of months. Well, we uh, we want to thank Dimitri and Ian Gordon for coming on and talking to us. I would encourage those of you who listen to the show live in the metropolitan area to go visit or to go to attend the New York City Junto on Thursday. Uh, we are just basically out of time. I do want to tell you that next week we're going to have Richard Mayberry with us. Richard Mayberry is an author of uh, a number of uh, books, and we're going to talk to him about one of his books that he wrote some time ago um, called Whatever Happened to Penny Candy. Candy. So that's it for this week. I want to thank each of you for listening to the show. I want to thank uh, Tacey Trump, my executive producer, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making the show logistically possible. Thanks to our sponsors. And until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.